Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be with you again on this Sunday morning. My name is Matt Ritchie. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, so I get to share a little bit with you today. And I would invite you to turn uh, as we dive into Revelation chapter 19. We're going to pick up there in verse 6. But just wanted to say again, welcome. And how timely is this series in light of the current events, right? And uh, I would just like to go on record and say we started this before, okay? So we were first, okay? I see all these churches all around doing series on Revelation and like, hey, we started a long time ago. So, but I, I say that because it is timely and uh, what we're experiencing, you know, like there's this war and there's war in Europe, there's war in Israel and we read all these headlines, and I think that when we look to the scriptures, which we should do, we're looking for answers. And I, I just want to go on record and say, I don't understand everything that the book of Revelation talks about. I don't know who the Antichrist is. Um, somebody, uh, there was a book um, I saw the title of, Are We Now in the Great Tribulation? No idea. Uh, like, I don't think so, but I don't know. Um, I don't know uh, what the crowns mean. I don't know who the horns are. I don't know the nations. I don't know anything, okay? And so there's a part of me that's like, why am I speaking to you on this today? Well, Pastor Keith uh, wants me to. That's one reason, but... <laughs> Whenever I get into these theological discussions, and I, and I experienced a few of these like when I was in Bible college and as I'm a pastor, like there's questions that we ask as believers that we probably will never have the answer to this side of heaven. And so my goal today is to ask the right question and make sure you have the answer to the right question. And really, the question for us today is, are you ready? Now, um, anybody like to be on time? Who, who are my 15-minute early, uh, who, who's my 15-minute early crowd? Now, if you, are, if you are truly in that group, five minutes before is late, correct? Like, if you're five minutes early, that's still late, right? Now, I'm a dead-on-time person. Like, if you tell me we're going to meet at 2.30, I don't read like between the lines and think 2.15. I believe you when you say 2.30, and so I show up four or five minutes in advance. Now, does that mean that sometimes I'm a little late, like two or three minutes? But that's still on time in my book. Two or three minutes late is still, that's close enough, right? Who, who's with me on that? Anybody think that's close enough? Okay. Who thinks you're still on time 15 minutes late? You're still like, that counts. You're, you're good. <laughs> I had a professor in a, in a college class. The, 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 the class was a 7 a.m. class, and it went from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. It was some computer class, I think. And if you showed up between 7 and 7.30, he counted you as present. You were still on time. He was my kind of teacher. I had another professor that counted me late. At, uh, the class was at 7.30. At 7.30 and one second, he was counting me late. So... Anyways, had to retake that class for missing too much time. But anyways, but, you know, when it comes to being on time, um, you know, we have different contexts, you know, like with a close friend, and we, we know we have a little bit of grace if traffic comes up or something happens, you know. But if it's somebody we don't know, we might feel a little, little bit more pressure to be there and ready and on time. Now, what about plane rides? Um, anybody like to be early to the airport? Okay. 
for you 15-minute early people, you're probably there two hours in advance, sitting at your gate, because you're anticipating traffic, car trouble, uh, security issues, you know, malfunctions on their system. You're going to be prepared for any scenario, right? And my, my idea of a perfect plane airport arrival is to go through security, walk right to the gate, and walk right on the plane and not have to sit down. Like, that's my idea of a perfect... And so, now I've learned with kids, you still have to like, okay, there's a few things you need to prepare for, but, and I'm taking a plane ride back to see my family on Tuesday at 5.30 a.m., and if I'm going to be on time, I have, to pe- I have to do some preparation. I have to take some time to be intentional with time management, packing, scheduling, transportation. I've got to put all those things in place so that I am ready to go at 5.35 a.m. <laughs> and what happens if I'm late? Does the pilot care that I'm late? He's taken off. Now, if he's delayed, that's their thing. But I'm on their timetable. I don't get to say, hey, you know, like traffic was bad and, uh, you know, like it was out of my control. Can you bring the plane back? No, they're not doing that. There's not a lot of grace there. And I'll kind of just share that to set up the idea that that's where we're kind of headed today. And, but to, as our launching point, I want to kind of overlap a little bit of what Pastor Keith talked about last week because he talked about the importance that, of understanding that we are spoken for, excuse me, we are spoken for by Christ. He has chosen us and we are to enter into relationship with him. And he talked about saying yes to the dress and, and talked about the engagement process and how we need to break up with old relationships to prepare for a relationship with Christ. And that's exactly where I want to start today. If you're taking notes, your first point is the bride will be united with Christ forever. The bride will be united for Christ, with Christ forever. And in Revelation 19.6, we talked about this last week, but it says, Then I heard what seemed like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. What is the picture here? It's a picture of a wedding. It's a picture of a celebration. It's a picture of a, of a marriage. And the reason that the scriptures use this picture is to paint us the reality that we are in relationship with Christ. It's not religion. It's a relationship. Let me differentiate between those two terms. Religion is just living up to a set of expectations or rules. It's performance-based. A relationship has, has some expectations, of course, But there's love, there's grace, there's mercy, there's communication, there's respect, there's honor, there's love. Maybe maybe to help you see the difference, um, I have a mortgage. Anybody pay rent or pay a mortgage, okay? Do you, now, I do not know the lender for my house. I don't know them personally. I'm not friends with them. Now, I sat down with them and I signed about that much paper and uh, like I made commitments. There's expectations, there's rules, there's guidelines, there's contingencies, all these things. There's fees, penalties. If I don't live up to my end of the bargain, I have to do this. If they don't live up to their end of the bargain, they have to do this. It's a contract. It's a list of expectations and it's, it's needed 
to keep things functioning smoothly. But I don't know them. I don't, they're not over at my house for dinner. Um, you know, like we don't hang out ever. I couldn't tell you their names. That's the difference between religion and a relationship. See, with my wife, I have a relationship with her. And are there expectations? Are there some guidelines? Do we have some ground rules that exist inside of our marriage? Absolutely. Because expectations and rules and guidelines help promote the relationship. But in addition to those things, there's love, there's honor, there's respect, there's communication. And so the scripture is painting this idea. This is, this is a relationship with Christ. This is not a contract. This is a covenant. And covenant is the idea of relationship, communication, love, respect, all those things. And so the question is, if we're to enter into a marriage covenant, a marriage relationship, spiritually speaking, with Jesus Christ, what does that look like? And here's the question. Is Jesus worthy of our trust, honor, and respect? Because that's what sets him apart from a religion to a relationship. We as a church are called the bride of Christ. And it's trying to communicate to us that this is more than an agreement. It's a relationship. And so I repeat the question again. Is Jesus worthy of our trust, honor, and respect? The very next passage, there's kind of a next section, 19 verse 11, Revelation 19, verse 11, John writes these words. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And that's the second point if you're following along in your sermon guide. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the one who is sitting on that white horse, he is called faithful and true. It's almost as if John is trying to answer this question for us. Is Jesus worthy of our trust? Is he worthy of our honor? Is he worthy of our respect? Of course he is because his very name is faithful and true. That's who he is. It's not just his title. It's who he is. And I want to just kind of be honest with you for a little bit this morning because when I look at the headlines and I look at what's happening, especially when in regards to Israel, I mean, when you wake up and read war in Israel, don't you just think like, well, the book of Revelation is happening right before our eyes. Let's just go outside and sit in our lawn chairs and wait for Jesus to come back because it's happening like within the next 20 minutes, right? We have this feeling that what we're seeing play out is what the Bible is talking about. And I can't know that for sure, but it sure feels that way, doesn't it? And so then when you start to put it in context, I don't know about you, but I've had largely, in, in comparatively speaking, a pretty blessed life. That said, I've experienced some really tough days. When I was 11, I had an uncle pass away at 46 years old, totally unexpected from a heart attack. He was more like a second father to me, changed our family forever. I've had my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and my dad deals with Crohn's disease, and there's health issues, and like I've had friends that experience loss, and I've had dark days and lonely times, and I've dealt with just struggles, and much like you guys have. And so when I look at my life, it's not devoid of pain. It's not devoid of brokenness. And I've messed up and I've made mistakes and I've done and said things that I, I should not have done and there's been like consequences and repercussions to that and 
I think we all identify with those feelings. Like even though like we have good days, we, can, we remember the bad days. And there are seasons in which we might be tempted to think, is God really faithful and true? Because if he really was faithful and true, would this really be happening? Would, would, would cancer happen? Would earthquakes happen and tornadoes and hurricanes and storms and all of these things that seem to be outside of the control of the human race? And then we look at war and we look at famine and we look at pandemics and suffering and it, all the brokenness across our world. And we're like, is, is God really faithful and true? Because if he was Logically in our minds, if God is really faithful and true and if he's all good and he's all powerful and he's all loving, why do these things happen? And this is an ancient question posed by the skeptics to the Christian faith. If you really believe in Jesus Christ, if you really put your faith in God, why does he not fix the problems? Why does he not wade in and do a miracle? He did at some point. He walked on water. He, he, rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Why doesn't he do these things for us? Why doesn't he do these, these things for me? And I've met and talked with people of all ages who have struggled with that question. I'm in a tough spot. Why isn't God here? Why isn't he fixing it? Why hasn't he shown up in the way that I want him to? And I have to remind you that Jesus did not promise a smooth road in this life. He never did. In fact, what he promised was the opposite. He, he promised that in this life, you will have trouble. And it's a result of sin. It's the sin of the human race. It's the fall of Adam. The scriptures is very clear. In Romans 5, it says, death entered into the world by the act of one man, the disobedience, the rebellion, the sin of one man, Adam. And we are still paying the price. In fact, uh, <laughs> um, I don't mean to be funny because this is a serious point, but one of the teens that uh, is in our youth group was, maybe it was at camp or something we were talking, and they were like, when we get to heaven, is Adam just going to be wearing a sign like, my bad guys, like super sorry? Like, <laughs> yeah, probably, he probably should. You know, it'd probably save him a lot of time and questions like, because there's going to be this endless line of people like, dude, what were you thinking? You know, like, but... Um, we look at the brokenness in it, and I want to tell you, like God, this is not God's original plan. He did not set it up this way. This is not how he designed it. But sin separated. Sin broke. It broke the relationship between us and God, and God has been on a mission ever since to restore us back to himself. He has pursued us. He's the one running after us. We're the ones running away, and and if we're really honest with ourselves, when we look across the landscape and we, we look at all the evil and the, and the suffering and the brokenness, it's on us. But God still has a plan. He is faithful and true. And he is worthy of our trust. Let me maybe put it in this context. Um, anybody lay awake at night just wondering... Like you just can't go to sleep and you just think about all kinds of things. You just start imagining stuff that hasn't even happened and you're like, okay, if somebody breaks in, okay, this is what I'm going to do next. And like, you know, you have all those weird thoughts. So one night, this is a couple years ago, and usually I don't remember what I think about uh, late at night, but for whatever reason, this stands out to me. But I was laying in bed, couldn't go to sleep, and I just began to do a mental exercise apart from God, what is worthy of my trust? 
And so I just kind of began to set up hypothetical scenarios in my own mind. Okay, okay so let's pretend I'm a, a wealthy millionaire. I, I've like maybe a like hedge funds or CEO of some company, and I have millions of dollars, maybe even billions. Like, would that be something? Could I put my trust completely in my financial security? And I began to think of, you know, how the economy could fail, the dollar could crash, or something could go sideways, and my business could fold, or whatever. And I began to realize that, yeah, that might be some some measure of security to have money in the bank, but but to have a foolproof, bulletproof plan, it could collapse. And I and I. I moved here in 2007, and so I moved here right when that recession first hit, right? And so I saw and heard how people lost everything. So I was like, okay, so like, it doesn't matter how much money I have in the bank, that's not, that's not trustworthy. So what about, okay, my personal health? If I really take care of my body and I eat right and I exercise and do all the things I know I should be doing in that arena, like maybe that'll preserve and my life longer. And, I, and, and those are healthy choices. We should probably do those things better than what we do. But I know that there are healthy people who have had, like they're the, the picture of health, but they're stricken with a disease or some sort of injury or accident or whatever. And it's like, okay, I can't, that's not foolproof. I should, I should do my best, but it's not foolproof. Then I began to think about like, like, like the government, like maybe if we got the right president or if we got the right people in Congress and they like, like what, like, okay, that's sort of a joke. That's never going to happen probably, but... <laughs> The point is, like, I can't put my trust in people. People are flawed. People mess up. Even the well-intentioned, the best leaders you can think of are still human, and they, they make mistakes, and they, they don't have, like, a superpower to see, like, the future, right? And they can't make all the perfectly right decisions, and so putting your trust in people doesn't work. Now, I even thought about this, like, can I, like, the very house that I live in, if I, like, maintain it and keep it, like, up, up to, you know, up to date and I, I make sure it's structurally sound, but anybody remember that earthquake that hit a few years ago? Like, that was unexpected, right? And I could, I, I, I could say, well, we're not in an area where there's tornadoes or hurricanes or, or a fire, whatever. Maybe it's in the mountains, but not in the valley. But in my neighborhood, a house burned down to the ground. I don't know how it happened or why it happened or anything, but even what we build with our own hands, there's no, I I can't control everything. That's the point. I can't protect everything. I don't have the power, I don't have the the wisdom, the capacity to, to put my arms around it and to guard it from everything that could come my way. And so what I realized at the end of that night was that God really was the only one I could put, truly put my faith and trust in. He is, he's, he's it. And the scripture says he is faithful and true. And so if I'm going to ask myself this question, is Jesus worthy of my trust, my respect, my honor? He absolutely is worthy. And he has promised to come through for us. And that's the next point. I want to make sure that you get this. Point number three, the bridegroom, Jesus, fights for his bride. And of course, like the picture again is marriage. Like you, like if we, if, if there was somebody getting married and they didn't respect or, or, or trust the one they were getting married to, we'd say, well, they probably shouldn't be getting married. If, if a husband and a wife do not fight for or defend 
each other and, and have unity in that relationship, we might say it's not going to last. But I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is fighting for us. He is fight. He, he understands the evil, the brokenness, the suffering. He, he sees it. He knows what's going on. He's not blind to it. He's not removed from it. In fact, I would say he has borne the burden of it. He took it to the cross. He understands what it's like to feel physical, emotional pain. He understands and he's fighting for us. And this is the next verse, Revelation 19, 11. It says this, and he is not only faithful and true, he, in, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And that, when you read that, you're like, man, like that sounds like an angry God. Well, who's he angry at? What's he angry with? Evil itself. He is coming to quarantine, to deal with, to defeat, to destroy evil once and for all. When we look across, like when we see somebody who is, is, is innocent be completely victimized, when we see evil on display like this war in Israel and there's terror and there's rockets and, and we, we have this idea that there's good and there's evil and we, I don't know about you, but I, I get kind of worked up. I, I want the evil... And the people that are, are, you know, pushing it forward, I want them to be dealt with harshly. I do. I'm just being real. I can't do that. It's not my job. I'm not the judge. God, Jesus Christ, he is the perfect judge. And I want to remind you that just because evil hasn't been dealt with now doesn't mean it won't be dealt with. He is coming to set things right. And we're in this time of waiting. I admit, I don't like being in the time of waiting. We live in, you know, modern time era. There's information on our phone, instant access. We have, po we have, we have uh, <laughs> Pop-Tarts as, like, like that's a, considered a sustenance in the morning. Like literally put them in the toaster ready in like a minute. And, and then like you, we have microwaves, we have pressure cookers, we have all the things like we want our food, we want it. We have a whole chain of restaurants called fast food, okay? Like we are addicted in some sense, I think, to comfort, to pleasure, to instantaneous gratification. We want what we want and we want it now. And and this sense that we're in a period of waiting, we don't like it. It's unnerving. We, we, we resist it. But I remind you that it's also a harsh, what I would call a harsh mercy. That's a, a line that I, I got from C.S. Lewis. Even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering, God uses those times to remind us that our home is not here. It's not about this life. We have to have an eternal perspective where we're living 
past the short amount of time we have here and we're living for what is to come. We are not citizens of this earth. We, as believers, and as, as the scripture calls us, as the bride of Christ, it's saying we are residents of someplace else. We are residents of heaven. We are, we are citizens of a life that is yet to be experienced. That's what we should be living for. And without the eternal perspective, I don't know how people get up in the morning. Because this world is a really hard place to live in. Can we agree? And so I have to tell you, and I, and I know maybe you, you know this, but when you're in bad times, when you're in bad moments, remind yourself, let God remind you, it's not about the here and now, it's about what is to come. That's what I'm living for. We've got to have that perspective. And then I want to come back to the issue of evil. God is faithful and true. He's not letting evil run rampant because he's not faithful and true. He's, he's letting us be in this time of waiting because he wants as many people as possible to turn to him. He's giving us time. He's giving us warnings. He's, he's, he's trying to shake us. He's trying to wake us up. Anybody been scared in the middle of the night? Anybody wake up in the middle of the night and you thought you heard something? Okay, so I had a unique experience. Um, I had some time off this month, and uh, I was going to go hunting, and then that didn't quite work out the way we had planned. There was some conflict with some schedules and stuff, so I had this time off, but maybe you assume this, maybe you didn't. I'll just say it. I can't go hunting into the mountains by myself. Like, I just don't have that skill, okay? So I would not make it. And um, so I need help. I need people to go with me and uh, do every... Do, anyways, so... <laughs> But what I can do is I can go fishing by myself, and I'd always had a dream to go fish the Madison River up in Montana. It's a great trout stream, and I had the time off, and Mindy, my wife, they were like, hey, you have this time off. You need a break. You just need to go. This has been kind of your bucket list uh, item. Just go up there. And I didn't really have much of a plan. I, didn't really, I don't really have like a camper or a tent or anything. And so I figured out a way. I have a GMC Yukon, like the long one. And I figured out a way. I took out the third seat and I like had room for my gear and I could sleep in there. So, and for me, like a bear walking up into my tent or into my camp and like just like a thin sheet of nylon between me and the bear, that didn't seem very secure. But being in a locked SUV seems safer. So like, I was like, sure, I'll, I, I can sleep in the car. So that's what I did. So I drove up there by myself, and uh, it gets dark at like 7.30. Okay, I don't know if you knew that. Um, notice that. The days are shorter. But when it gets dark and there's no cell service and you're by yourself, I didn't think I was scared of the dark, but I was, <laughs> there's a few moments where I was a little more uneasy than I thought I would be. So, had a great, caught some fish, it was great, great experience, but like the second night, um, I woke up out of a dead sleep, and I, you know those Costco boxes of like chips you can buy, you know those individual packages of chips, I had taken one of those boxes as part of my food, and there's some other stuff in there, but there's a few bags of those chips in there, and they make that crinkling noise, okay? At two in the morning, I heard this crinkling noise like like a like some little critter was in the car in that box messing with those chi- those bags of chips that's what i thought okay and i came 
sitting straight up out of a dead sleep. And I was like, there's, in my head, I think I even said it out loud, there's something in here. Like, what is in here? And I'm like, I'm like listening for it. And, and I'm like, what? And I heard some other critters outside, like on the bumper or on the top. I don't, I don't know what I heard exactly, but... Like, it was all three times as big as it probably, in my imagination, that it really was. But I'm, I'm sitting there in the pitch black, and I know a mouse isn't going to eat me, okay? I know I'm going to survive it. But just the idea that something is in there, like, that's, that's unnerving, okay? And I'm like, what am I going to do? I, like, I, if I try to find this thing, it'll just, like, go under the seats, or I don't know where to go. Like, I'll never find it. And I don't know how exactly, but I rationed... Rational, anyways, like, rationalized, thank you, that I couldn't do anything about it anyways, and it probably wouldn't bug me, so somehow I went back to sleep. My wife was like, there's no way I would have torn apart the car looking for that. But I go back to sleep, and, uh, but that, I remember that feeling of just being, like, unnerved. By the way, I didn't finish the story, I just left it as a cliffhanger in the first service. I'll finish the story right now. It was my foot. I was accidentally kicking. (laughs) I was... I was accidentally in my sleep moving the... Anyways. So it turned out to be nothing. But for those 10 or 15 minutes, I was... When I thought I was threatened, I was wide awake. Maybe that's not a good way to to illustrate this, but... When we're in this time of waiting and there's some things that are unnerving and outside of our control and a little bit scary and it's a little bit dark, it'll wake us up. And I think one of the messages from Jesus to the church should be, hey, wake up, be alert, be ready. The time is near. Don't, get, don't fall asleep. And I'm talking spiritually. Don't get lazy. Don't get apathetic. Don't forget what's really important. Stay alert. Because what's really important is not this life. It's what's, it's what's coming. And Jesus is coming to deal with evil. He's going to deal with it with a, a, an iron rod. And we're going to celebrate that as, as the righteous who have been rescued and, 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 and revived out of that. His wrath is not for the church. His wrath is not for the righteous. But a good and just God must deal with evil. He must do it or else he's not a good and trustworthy God. And so we're in this time of waiting where he's calling as many people as, as possible to himself. Hey, come out, come out of your ways. Come to me. I want to restore you. I want to rescue you because there's going to be a time that comes and it's coming soon where I'm going to have to deal with evil and it's going to be dealt with with finality. Hallelujah. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But it means that we have to be awake. We need to be ready. And so here's, that's really my big point. In my own Christian walk, I have been tempted to perform perfectly to please God. And what I see here is that we are not called to be perfect. As Pastor Keith articulated, we have all fallen short. We have all missed the boat of perfection. There's no way we can live up to 
God's standard in and of ourselves. And so he has given us the righteousness of Christ. He has clothed us with righteousness. We have the responsibility to put that on, to take it on, to take on his name, to take on the identity of Christ and say, I am under your lordship. But we are not called to be perfect, but we are called to be ready. We are not called to be perfect, but we are called to be ready. On September 7th, 2007, Matthew Stephen Ritchie and Mindy Shireen Crane were joined together in holy matrimony. That was my wedding, by the way. Um, We got engaged the previous fall in 2006, and we... Let's be honest, she planned meticulously the wedding, okay? Now, I had a few few, uh, parts in it, obviously, but um, we began to think about music. There was music that was chosen, songs to be sung. There was clothing that was selected with care. Uh, My clothing was selected for me. Um, I don't know if other husbands identify with that. Um, the location was reserved. We, we made sure that we had a place to get married. Um, the guests were invited. Um, we sent invitations. We, we set the date. We did all the preparation. We wanted to have a reception, excuse me, afterwards. And so there was food and a menu. And I don't know how all that worked together. I don't even remember how the food showed up. But we, somebody was there to make sure it was it happened. My family, a lot of my family is from back east, so they were 2,800 miles away, so they were looking for plane tickets and hotel rooms, and we were trying to find extra bedrooms with friends and family, and then the ceremony itself was planned, and, and then on that morning, September 7th, the day came, and myself, Mindy and I, we were at the church early. It was an evening wedding. It was a Friday night. And uh, we, I was there like at some time in the morning. I was dressed like hours in advance. I don't know what she was doing because I wasn't allowed to be anywhere close to where she was. But me and my groomsmen, we're in this like other room of the church and we just, we just waited. And thank goodness for Xbox and Madden football because that's like, there was nothing to do. Like we just waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. But Mindy and I were not late for our wedding. We were there early. We were awake. We were prepared. We were ready. And when the moment came, we walked down that aisle and we joined together in marriage. We prioritized that moment. Nothing was going to deter us. Nobody was going to call me and be like, hey, you want to go like, play around to golf, you know, like, I'd be like, no, I'm not going. Like, hey, do you want to go to, no, there was nothing that was going to come in the way of that appointment. It was prioritized, and I was early, and I was ready. And that's the picture that Jesus communicates to us in scripture. He's saying, watch, be ready. I know waiting is hard, but I this, this moment is too important for you to miss. You've got to be ready. In fact, it, it's hard for me to not talk about the parable of the 10 virgins. Matthew 25 talks about this story. You're, you can turn there, but I'll just tell you the story um, briefly. 
there's this parable that Jesus tells and there's a wedding that's going to happen and a bridegroom is coming to get his bride and there are 10 virgins, five that are wise, five that are unwise. It's just how the scripture describes them. The five wise virgins, they they knew that the bridegroom was coming at night so they filled their lamps with oil. They didn't have flashlights or lanterns, okay? So they had oil lamps and that was their primary source of light and they had oil in their lamps and they had extra oil in case the bridegroom was delayed so that they could continue to have their lamps lighted. But the five unwise virgins virgins did not have enough oil and they began to run low. And they said, hey, can we borrow some of yours? And the five wise uh, young ladies were like, no, we have to preserve what we have. You're going to have to go into the marketplace and get your own. And so the five uh, other five unwise virgins go to the marketplace and while they're gone buying extra oil, that's when the bridegroom comes and they miss it. They miss it. And the wedding party departs without them. And so they run after them. And when they get to the location, the door is shut. And they knock on the door and they say, can we please come in? And the answer is not, nope, you didn't have oil or you weren't there or nothing like that. Here's the answer. And here's the point of the parable. Jesus is speaking. He's telling the story. And he said, but he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. It's a relationship. It's not about performance, it's about a relationship. But if we're gonna prior, if we're gonna be in relationship with Christ, we've got to be ready. Why is this parable given to us? So and I think it's important, and I'm gonna try to just in five short minutes explain a few things that I think might help bring it to light. See, as Western culture people, what I just described to you about my own wedding, I, I figure like most of you identify with that language. There was like a ceremony and songs and vows and all that kind of stuff. When I say wedding, that's probably what you think of, white wedding dress and all of that. That's Western culture. Eastern culture is much, much different, and that's the context in which the scriptures were written. The scriptures were written in ancient Eastern Orthodox culture. So there was no, like, dating apps. There was no, like, you know, like, it was just different. For example, here's just some of the differences, and I think that these are so cool because it, it speaks to us, at least for me, it, it clarifies why Christ has taken the approach he's done because he's trying to communicate relationship between us and him. See, traditionally in Eastern culture, the groom did not choose his bride. He didn't just go out and find a couple girls at the well and be like, hey, let me have your number. Like, let me see how the, like, there was none of that, okay? The father of the groom chose the bride for his son. And in the same way, God the father has chosen us to be the bride for his son, Jesus Christ. That's the picture. So starting there, then the next, here's what would happen next in the process. Once the bride was chosen for the son, then it was the groom's job. He would go to the home of the bride and he would negotiate a price to be paid for his bride. Usually it was give, there was a, a, a something of value given, a dowry, a ring of some kind. And that communicated worth and value to her, but it also was just, like that seems totally like averse to, to me, to us, but that's what they would do. Well, what did Jesus do? He left his father's house, he came to where we are, and he paid the ultimate price. 
He communicated his value, his love to us by giving it all, the shedding of his own blood on a Roman cross. That's how much we are worth to him, his life. He paid the ultimate price. Then the next step in the process, once the price was agreed upon, then the groom and the bride and her family would sit down and they would negotiate an agreement, a covenant. They would set up expectations for the future marriage. And they would write all these things down. They would articulate them to each other. They would get all of their expectations out for the other person to hear. And once those things were agreed upon, then they would drink a cup of wine to signify that the agreement, the covenant, had been agreed upon. If you have a, a Bible uh, in front of you, there's two main sections of your Bible, Old and New Testament, right? The word testament literally is a, a word that means covenant. And what did Jesus do the night before his death? He took his disciples to the upper room and he broke the bread and he, he drank from the cup and he passed it to them. He said, do this in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood. It's as if he was saying, hey, I've taught you everything. I've set up all the expectations. I've given you like the truth of God. I've been word made flesh. I've walked among you. I've taught you. I've done everything I can to set up the expectations of our relationship. And now that it's agreed upon, we're gonna drink from the cup. This is the new covenant. After they would drink that cup, signifying the agreement for the future marriage. They're still betrothed, engaged, whatever word you want to use there. Then the bridegroom would leave. She, the bride would stay home with her family. The bridegroom would then leave. And I don't know how long it would take. I don't know if there was like a, a, a traditional amount of time or, or it's just different from person to person. But his job was then to prepare a home for, for which they would live in. And you probably have heard this scripture, but if not, I'll just paraphrase it for you. Jesus was with his disciples one day and he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many, and one translation says mansions, but a better translation is rooms. See, in Jewish tradition, what would happen is there was a main family homestead and when it was time for the son to get married and to begin his own family, he would simply build an extra room onto the home, the house of his parents or his father or maybe his grandfather. And so Eastern culture is very communal living, generations living together. And so he would set up this new room for him and his bride to return to. And that was his job, to prepare a place for her and him to live. Her job was to wait, to prepare, to be ready for that day. She didn't know when he would return. She didn't know, she had maybe an idea, but she didn't know, know the exact moment. And then when his, when his job was done, he would return to her home. And usually, I don't know why, but usually according to, to tradition, he would return at night. And she would need to be ready to be taken back with him. And then they would go through the ceremony. And then the, the first thing they would do as a married couple together would be to have a meal. And it was called the marriage supper. That's the picture. 
We are in a time of waiting. We are in the place, we are as, it's as if we are the bride of Christ and we're waiting. He is preparing a place for us and he's coming back to rescue us out of this life and to take us into eternity forever. And so the question there again is, are you ready? Stay awake, be alert, be knowledgeable of the truth of the word of God. Live in that eternal perspective. Make sure there's oil in your lamp. In other words, walk in the spirit. Oil is often used to symbolize the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Stay close to him, communicate with God, worship him, give him your, your life, your honor, your respect. Allow him to be the decision maker and then put your trust in him. He's coming soon. He's coming again. And even though your life might not be what you want it to be now, he is coming to put things right again. He is faithful. He is true. He's worth, he's worthy of our trust and our respect. Amen.